0: Paramedic Forty Three, District One, Engine Fifty One, response: cardiac arrest.
1: Hello, everybody. Welcome again to another edition of the MCHD Paramedic Podcast. This is Casey Patrick, and today we have a couple special guests joining us on the podcast. We have Lee Gillum, our education supervisor here at MCHD. Thanks for joining us, Lee. Hey, good morning. And we have Andrew James, who is the Chief of Vehicular Crimes at the uh, Montgomery County District Attorney's Office. So I'll be on my best behavior today, everyone. Thanks for joining us, Andrew.
0: Thanks for having me, Casey.
1: And for the listeners out there, I am not in trouble. Um, This is, uh, uh, Andrew is not here to see me about anything, fortunately. We're actually here today to talk about what happens when uh, you get subpoenaed as a paramedic or first responder. And this is uh, not an uncommon Occurrence uh, for us in the pre hospital setting or in the emergency department setting for that matter, and it can be really pretty darn stressful. And there's not a textbook chapter, unless I missed that one, Lee, uh, in the paramedic textbook or in the EMS textbooks or in the emergency medicine textbooks for that matter regarding what to do when you're subpoenaed. So that was really the impetus for the podcast today. Correct. So, um, Thanks, Andrew, for joining us and thanks for you know, lending us your expertise. And hopefully when the listeners are finished with this episode, we'll have a better idea of what to do when that, when that subpoena comes through. So lead us off with some, with some questions, Lee. We're going to uh, uh, get all the knowledge sponge off Andrew all we can while he's here with us.
2: So, Andrew, tell us a little bit about your role with the DA's office and what kind of cases that typically our folks are being subpoenaed for.
0: So, I personally am in charge of all the any kind of car crash case that results in a fatality or someone being seriously injured, the criminal charges come from that. But our office, as you guys are aware, we prosecute lots and lots of crimes that the hospital district is potentially gonna be a witness on. Like it could just be a standard DWI, a misdemeanor offense, where someone got into a a minor crash and paramedics came out to check them out, all the way up to a potential capital murder case that y'all's folks could be witnesses on. You know, someone is uh, murdered in the course of committing a robbery, first responders are called out there, maybe the person's still alive and they they're, uh, y'all, y'all's all folks are treating them before they die, before they pass away. That's another, you know, kind of really the, the entire end of the spectrum from misdemeanor assaults, DWIs, drug possession, really anything that's... Where a situation arises that y'all may be out there to try to treat somebody all the way up to, you know, potentially even a death penalty case.
2: You mentioned subpoena. And typically when any EMS personnel are subpoenaed, there's a little bit actually a lot of anxiety that occurs. So what happens when they get subpoenaed? Who's usually going to subpoena them?
0: So it there's Essentially, kind of three types of situations where y'all's folks may get subpoenaed as as an individual being subpoenaed. We send subpoenas all the time for records, and I know there's you know that that gets handled uh, by somebody else. But when y'all's paramedics are being subpoenaed, it's either going to be one for a criminal case, and which is probably going to be the most the vast majority of them, and that's usually going to be from our office, the DA's office. Um, if it's a civil case, it could be either side, and then kind of the third scenario would be if for some reason they're getting subpoenaed and. The hospital district is the defendant in a lawsuit or maybe they're being sued and if that is the situation then really none of what I'm talking about today applies um, because that's a whole different animal than being a witness on a case if you're a party to a case that's entirely different than being subpoenaed as a witness so the first thing they really want to do when they get that subpoena and if it says you know the state of Texas versus whatever on there is read the subpoena if it says you know say whoever versus whoever some sort of lawsuit that maybe maybe it was a car crash that they came out on and someone's suing somebody claiming injuries or what have you but what they want to do is read through that subpoena because there's going to be a contact info on there the subpoenas that our office sends there's always going to be a prosecutor or an investigator and a phone number to call to say hey reach out to this person when you get it and that's what they need to do they also need to pull their report and refresh their memory you know maybe it was two years ago mm-hmm. for whatever they did for what they're being subpoenaed for maybe it was six months ago i don't know it just you know they they want to know what it is. Um, they're dealing with before they call so at least they have an idea about you know what they're gonna want to do and and what the the lawyer that subpoenaed them the prosecutor in the vast majority of these cases is gonna want to talk to them about and then kind of the the third thing that they typically want to do and and it's a big um, help for our folks and if they're if our prosecutors aren't doing this on a case they should be is trying to set up some sort of pretrial meeting with the first responder because if they're being subpoenaed on a criminal case Odds are it's going to trial in the next month or so. If they're being subpoenaed on a civil case, it may be for a deposition, which is you know they may have to go somewhere and be questioned, but they're not going to court in front of a jury in front of a judge. It's still under oath. It's still extremely important, but you know it's you know th- those things are, are not as oftentimes as, as time pressing. Um, so th- that's the main things they want to do is read through what's on there and con- you know pull their reports and contact somebody initially
2: should they be worried about legal representation
0: you know like i said if it's if it's a case where they are just being subpoenaed as a witness if it's the state of texas versus somebody or if it's something that doesn't list them or the hospital district as a lawsuit then you know i can't give anybody here legal advice but they're not um that they're a witness at that point so as a witness you know they can certainly talk to a lawyer but they don't need to have one they're not being accused of anything um you know, I say they're not being accused of anything. They may get accused of stuff on cross-examination by somebody if they testify to something that they don't like, which is common. I mean, if you ever talk to any police officers, they're always accused of either doing things wrong or lying about stuff or what have you, you know, all the time. That's that's part of, you know, what a, a this adversarial process our court system is. But, you know, no, they're, they, they they if they're, you know, if if they're just being a witness, they don't need a lawyer.
2: Typically, how long does it take for the, in in your case, uh, the car crash to occur, Mm -hmm. and the records or the employee to be subpoenaed. What's that time frame typically?
0: Usually around a year. Um, Usually around a year, sometimes a little sooner, sometimes a little longer. Um, You know, if it's say, say it's an intoxication manslaughter case, you know, it's probably, uh, getting to trial within a year is pretty, is, you know, an ideal situation, but usually a little quick, maybe a year and a half, sometimes even longer, it depends on the court. It depends if a defendant is in jail or on bond. It depends what other cases are pending in that court. There's a whole lot of factors that are going to potentially delay something. It could be six months on a misdemeanor DWI. It could be, you know, that that short, but usually it's going to be around a year, I would say. Do they have to worry about appeals and
2: being resubpointed for appeals?
0: That could potentially happen too. So if a case goes to trial, person gets convicted, and then they appeal their conviction if it gets overturned on appeal or years later on what's called a writ. Um, a case could be retried. And I mean, you see in the news every now and then about cases that are 20 years old being retried on you know, often on a, a death penalty case is because the law has changed while this person's been on death row for a long time. So, you know, it could, it could happen with someone who's retired could end up being subpoenaed to need to come in and testify to something.
2: Right. Now you mentioned the pretrial meeting. Why is that pretrial meeting important?
0: So a pretrial meeting is important because it gives an opportunity for the attorney And the witnesses sit down and talk and one get on the same page we as lawyers may use terms and there may be certain legal terms that are important to a case that you know lee if you're my witness you may not think of it that way i may want you to know the legal definition if hey if i'm one of the things i have to prove is that this person suffered what's legally defined as serious bodily injury under the law then i'm going to go over that term with you be like hey you know this is the term these are the injuries here because that's one thing I have to prove. Additionally, there may be terms that y'all use. In fact, there—it's not a maybe. There are terms that y'all use that I have no idea what they mean. And I've been doing this for nearly twelve years, and have you know been, you know, working with uh, paramedics as witnesses a lot. Um, there may be things in the records that we get from y'all that we subpoena and get from y'all that we need an explanation on. There may be a situation where we have you know photographs from a scene or maybe a video or body cam video, which is becoming more and more prevalent these days, and might need you to say, hey, you know, you're know, you on video there as you're, you're treating this person as police get there. What are you doing? Can you explain that to us? Because we're gonna show it, it's gonna end up as evidence in the trial, and we're gonna need you to explain it to a jury. Um, another thing that's good about it too, that's important is to talk about what I, as the prosecutor that's calling you as a witness, is expecting to ask you. And let you know, hey, these are the things I'm going to, I plan on going over with you and asking you on the stand. It may not be a, you know, verbatim, this is what I'm going to ask questions, but at least an outline, an overview of what I want to ask you is what I expect to kind of get from your testimony. And additionally, I may have had the, a, an erroneous assumption before that meeting that maybe you did something or didn't do something that I wasn't aware of. Oftentimes, and I can tell you my personal practice is, I'm going to send a subpoena for every single person from the hospital district whose name is on that report because I don't know who did what. And so oftentimes when I'll meet with folks, be like, okay, well I drove and Lee did this. Lee was taking care of the patient. I'm like, okay, so I probably, Lee's probably the better witness at that point to come testify. What we don't want is bringing three of y'all in to sit outside a trial for half a day or longer and then not need to end up calling everybody. You know, we don't wanna waste your time. We don't wanna waste a jury's time, quite frankly. You know, if we have a situation where one witness can explain something and the other two people would be redundant, then we don't need to call those other two people. We want to streamline things as much as possible. So one, for the sake of streamlined presentation for a jury, and two, for the sake of not having y'all's people sitting out there when they should be out doing their job and saving people's lives as opposed to sitting right. outside the courtroom.
2: Typically, when does that pretrial meeting occur? Does it occur a week before, or a month before, the day before, or the day of?
0: It really could be any of those. It just depends on what type of case. It depends on, um, you know, oftentimes there's multiple cases set for trial in one week. Say we're talking about a a misdemeanor trial docket. There may be 20 or 30 cases all set for trial on Monday. They may have a good idea about which one's going to go, but plea negotiations on cases happen all the time, even up till the last minute. So maybe over the weekend, the first three cases plea, and now we're on number four, and maybe they didn't have a chance to meet with the person ahead of time. Whereas if it's a, you know, serious felony case, like I go back to, like I said, an intoxication manslaughter or something.
2: Why is the EMS report important and how does it play a role in the testimony? And I'm going to add one more question onto that. Can the medic read from the report during testimony?
0: So to, I'll start with the last one. Yes. Oftentimes the EMS reports are going to get admitted as evidence in, in a case, So the reports are really important because one, we subpoena those as part of a complete case file when they've been done. Because there's gonna be important information for both the prosecution and the defense. You know, if someone is highly intoxicated and they're being treated by EMS and it's a case dealing with intoxication and the paramedics are noting that hey, there's nothing medically wrong with this person, they are impaired or some altered mental status, I think is a term that I see a lot. Mm You know, then that may be a witness that we want to bring in to help. You know, it's another opinion, another expert opinion, essentially, from someone who deals with folks every day who's got medical training to testify that, yes, I checked this person out and they're not, you know, they weren't, it wasn't any sort of illness. It wasn't anything like that, but they were mentally, you know, impaired. It helps corroborate what the officer says. Anything that's, and additionally, like say, you know, y'all treat a victim in a case who is injured. Maybe that victim was unconscious because of something that happened to them. Strangulation victim who, you know, maybe the the paramedics are noting things that the officers aren't seeing. There's stuff that y'all may see that we want to have someone testify to that helps corroborate. That, you know, um, that perhaps, you know, the person had petechia or something like that that was seen, or they noted some marks on the line that oftentimes, you know, when you've got, you know, the the, the marks all sometimes being seen on on right. people's throats when the they've been strangled. The neck, right. Yeah, mm-hmm. fo- they don't show up in photographs really well. So if someone has seen that and documented that, then that's something that we, you know, might need them to come testify to. But the the big thing with the reports are oftentimes and there's, you know, I understand um, y'all's job out there is to save people's lives. You're not out there to document every single thing. You're not writing a police report. The more details are always the better. Is always better. That's you know what we prefer. That's what lawyers prefer: is more information um, and having more details. We like that. But the um, the bet the main thing about it too is writing everything out. So one, it can help refresh your memory if you need it a year later to testify. Two, if there's anything important that was said or done that you can that you think is noteworthy, like if someone says some sort of um, you know I I shot him or whatever and then he stabbed me, like. And you remember that? You may want to put that in quotes kind of oh, thing. definitely. In there. definitely. Now, if you've got situations like that, it's really, it can be really helpful. Um, I know I've kind of gotten far afield from your, your questions. No, <laughs> that's I think okay. I'm, that's okay. I missed one of them. And,
2: and while we're walking down that yeah. path, if, if you'll forgive me real quick, Doc, is you know what about evidence preservation? What role do we play in evidence preservation? And should we be ultimately super concerned about evidence preservation, such as nut cutting through the bullet hole on the clothing? Or the or the knife wound or this puncture wound of the clothing, or should we just worry about our job? Because sometimes hindsight's twenty twenty. Mm-hmm. I shouldn't have cut through that, or I shouldn't yeah. have done
0: that. I would say whatever the practices and procedures for the hospital district on that is the way to go. My gut response is y'all's job is to be saving people's lives, and I don't want to say anything that's going to change other than that. So whatever needs to be done to save somebody's life, do that. Believe me, we. Um, if if someone is thinking that could be a bullet hole and they're cognizant of it and can cut around mm-hmm. or something like that, great.
2: Unlike TV, yeah. one shirt fiber yeah. of a bullet hole is not gonna make or break a case. Yeah.
0: It's it, it, it can it's it can be helpful evidence. And if they're if they're thinking about that and realize what it may be, great. But primarily do what you gotta do to keep somebody alive. Because, you know, the better evidence for us is the person who's alive that says that they got shot by this person and how it happened, as opposed to having a bullet hole in there. Right. And even at the end of the day, no matter what, that's still saving a life of someone who's still alive, as opposed to someone to, you know, I, I would rather have more people alive than better evidence preservation. Honestly, I'd rather have both if that's possible, but if I have to choose one, <laughs> I, you know, we know what it is.
1: I, I appreciate the honesty there. Yeah. I also, from a educational standpoint, and I think Lee's going to agree with me here. I hope, um, you know, as far as the thoroughness of the report and talk through that, yeah. um, uh, you know, at length, Andrew. The, mm-hmm. There is a point, though, where I feel like you pass the sort of you can sort of law of diminishing returns, and you leave your area of expertise. Yeah, you know, I think it's important for us to remember as emergency providers, paramedics, nurses, mm-hmm. emergency physicians, that we're not forensic pathologists and we're not you're law right. enforcement officers, yeah, right. and most of the time when we walk into a situation, I know the situations that I've been in where I've been subpoenaed. Mm -hmm. I knew it when I walked in the door almost every time to the room or, you know, the situation. So I think we have pretty good sense. I think you'd agree that you, when you know those scenes and those runs where you're probably going to be getting that letter in, in 10 to 12 months,
2: even for the novice individual in the profession, you get a gut that Mm -hmm. gestalt feeling that I need to document, pay a little bit more attention to my documentation, be a little more thorough, but not be overly verbose. But you don't
0: need to do, you don't need to write a novel. Correct. You don't need war and peace. And
1: and, i also yeah, war and peace is not, not necessary. I also think that things like, you know, entrance wound and exit Mm -hmm. wound, for example, I'm not a trained forensic pathologist. I don't know which one's which. Now I know there's a a gunshot wound to the chest with an wound to the back, Mm -hmm. and I can document that very, very uh, appropriately as an emergency physician. Uh, I just be cautious out there of trying to go beyond what your area of expertise is, because that's going to do nothing in the yeah. end but get you in trouble.
0: With, I, I couldn't agree with you more. Uh, I mean,
2: you know, I would agree, and I would also add this on: if you don't understand the word that you're writing, don't try to write the word. Write in plain English. Yeah. I totally agree. It, it,
0: everybody needs to remember to, you know, for a sports analogy, play your position, stay in your lane. You know, correct. If you know from your training experience that that's a gunshot wound and you can justify that, great. If you see two gunshot wounds and one looks bigger, bigger than the other one, and you can note that, great as well too. But you know, trying to say how something happened, you know, basically what needs to be in the reports are documenting the facts. What was seen, what was heard, what was smelled, what was said, what was done, and then any editorializing Needs to be avoided basically, unless you know we've got a person that maybe they've got some additional training and experience that they can justify that. But the vast majority, let's just document the facts of what was seen done and those kind of things. And in
1: the end, for the listeners out there, that should be every chart, right? Yeah. This is be uh, objective, uh, be factual, mm. don't be subjective, don't draw supposition. A well build chart is a solid medical legal chart, is a uh excellent chart for continuity of care there's not a different chart for each situation mm-hmm. these, this these should all look exactly the same now for you three four sentence writers out there you know this may be a situation where you need to go to eight okay. or ten for andrew's sake please, please <laughs> write more but for, for you novel writers don't extend the length and add a couple yeah. chapters on in these situations it's we talked offline before yeah. we started the podcast and i feel like it's you know, I remember back when I was uh, 18 or 19 and got in a little bit of trouble here and there and I would show back up on Sunday morning at the house and give my mom the story about where I was and it would keep going and going and going and going. And that was just key into my mother that none of it was true sure. and I didn't know what I was talking about and I was making everything up. So you don't want to, I don't think you want to end up there when you're on the
0: stand, so. And then could I add one sure. one more thing about report writing? You know, one thing that, that everyone needs to acknowledge is that you're going to potentially remember things that you don't document in there you're going to get cross-examined on that it happens it's you know it's part of it if you know if if it's something that's that when you're doing when you're writing a report that you remember that you think is important and is noteworthy i would advise you to include it in there but it's you know we're all human beings that's we, we remember things later on you're going to get crossed about it but you know just you know understand that you're get, you may get accused of making it up that's part of, that's part of the system how things work. You know, if it was so important that you remember it and you're testifying to it, but you, it wasn't important enough to write it down is a common kind of, you know, couple questions on cross there, but it happens every day.
2: So I'm going to jump ahead a little bit and, and I want to come back to our next question, mm-hmm. but I've been on the stand multiple times uh-huh. and several times I've been labeled as a hostile witness. And what exactly does that mean? I'm not a mean person. I'm, very rarely do I have a mean bone in my body. And to be labeled as a hostile witness, what's that mean for me?
0: So a hostile witness is a legal term. It's essentially anyone who is called by the other side. So, and that's just kind of generically, the way, the way uh, having a witness testify works is essentially two parts. You have direct examination and cross-examination. Direct examination is the questions being asked by the party that called that person as a witness. So Lee, if I'm... Trying a case, and I've subpoenaed you and I've called you as a witness. Unless you are for some reason aligned with the defense and say, you know, say it was your spouse that was the defendant. Okay. And the way you're responding to my questions, I could potentially get you labeled as a hostile witness because, you know, there's evidence to suggest you're not being forthcoming. You're not really answering questions the way a normal direct examination witness would. Because in normal direct, I'm asking questions. Where you as the witness are the one who the focus is on I'm asking things like Who what why describe explain those kind of things open-ended questions that allow you to? Explain what you did what you saw those kind of things on cross-examination That's when attorneys get to use what are called leading questions where we it's a question that essentially um, It's more or less a statement that implies an answer and the idea is the witness is primarily gonna be answering yes or no to those so you can use leading questions when questioning a hostile witness. Okay. So I'm hoping in the situations when you've been a hostile witness, it's been on cross-examination. Correct, it has been on cross so that's, yeah, each time. So that's, everybody, you know, is kind of considered hostile, for lack of a better way of putting it, when they're on cross, because the other side gets to question their story. They get to challenge Let's it. They get, that's the point of cross-examination, is to see if that, you know, the, this witness's story survives the crucible of cross-examination, as it's often referred to.
2: Okay, I, so I, it's just a questioning technique. I
1: thought yeah. you were up there throwing a fit, Lee.
2: Yeah. <laughs> no, not necessarily. I,
0: I can tell you, I have had some of my own witnesses before that I've had to really? ask a judge to declare hostile because, you know, if, if you've got someone who doesn't want to testify, say they're, they're a victim of a crime and it's a family member and they don't want to testify, it happens. If you've got, you know, a, a, a witness that doesn't want to cooperate because they're scared of possible repercussions, it's a rare thing, but it happens. Or they just, they don't want to, someone to get in trouble because of what they did to them. You know, it's, um, it unfortunately happens at times. So where we, you know, we as the prosecutor are asking the judge to allow us to cross examine essentially a witness that we've called and the rules do provide that for that in certain circumstances. That
2: makes sense. So it's the day of court. What do I wear? When do I show up? What do I wear? Do I show up on the first day, the second day? How does that work?
0: Great question. So the subpoena is typically going to say like a Monday morning at 830 or 9 a.m. The vast majority of the time, folks do not need to be showing up there. That's another reason why having a pretrial meeting is important because, for example, that time, that Monday at 9 a.m. is probably when the jury panel is being brought in for jury selection. We're not going to be starting evidence until the afternoon at the earliest, depending on that type of the case. We may not even be starting with opening statements and calling witnesses until the next day. So what a lot of us like to do and what a good practice is, is to obviously exchange contact information and say, Lee, if you're a witness on an intox manslaughter that i'm trying i'm gonna have a decent idea about who i want to call in what order and of course that changes based on people's availability trials are very fluid um you know depending how things go we're constantly changing things around that kind of stuff but i may you know want to start with you as a witness or i'm going to start with this officer or a victim or something and then put you on here and the good a good practice is for us to be able to kind of say hey i need you here on tuesday morning at this time And you should hopefully be done that morning and not need to come back or come in Wednesday afternoon. The last thing you want to do is just read the subpoena and not call somebody and show up that morning because they're not going to need you yet. When you're showing up to court, if you're being subpoenaed because of something you did in an official capacity for the hospital district, even if you're off duty, even if you're off that day, wear your uniform. You should wear your uniform because you're being, you know, you're not coming in really as just a lay person at that point. You're coming in as a representative of the hospital district. If the facts of what you're needed to testify to are from the work that you did, then I think you should wear your uniform.
2: Well, it, and I'm gonna speak just a little bit more of that. If mm-hmm. you're wearing your uniform, at least from MCHD, wear a clean uniform. Don't come in <laughs> from shift from the day before yeah. with a dirty uniform and dirty boots.
0: Do y'all have dress uniforms in? I know some law enforcement we agencies have, doing that well, kind we, of stuff?
2: Well, in for our field staff we consider a class A, which is long sleeve and a tie. <laughs> so um I think it would behoove most staff to wear a long sleeve. And uh, I think... Um, a lot of times the courtrooms the are cold, too. So, I think a tie would be good. It yeah. denotes an air of professionalism that you're coming prepared to speak in a professional
0: capacity. O- oftentimes, a lot of the local law enforcement agencies have similar policies to where when you're coming to testify, they want you in, you know, uh, certainly a clean uniform and, and a tie and those kind of things. Um, if If you're in a situation where you're say it, you know, you were a witness not in your official capacity, then no, you don't need to wear your uniform. If you are coming in to testify on behalf of like a friend as a punishment witness or something, you know, God forbid a situation arises where, you know, say, it, you know, someone's good friend has been charged with a crime and they're subpoena somebody that works for the hospital district to come testify and say the punishment phase to say why this person needs probation or shouldn't go to prison or a minimal punishment kind of thing. And this same rule applies to officers. It never looks good for someone to show up in an unofficial capacity wearing an official uniform because they are going to get questioned about that. Yeah. And it's going. It's probably not gonna go well for them because they're, they're trying to have that uniform give an impression to a jury. When if you weren't a witness in your official capacity, then I don't think I personally don't think the uniform is appropriate. And if you were coming to testify on behalf of a defendant in your uniform because he's your neighbor and he's a good guy or he's your you know cousin or brother-in-law, I'm certainly going to ask you why are you wearing your uniform today? Does who you work for have anything to do with this? So you know it, it certainly makes the person look bad, even if they're there trying to do the right thing. And it also could make the the hospital district look bad too. Right.
2: Very good point. Very good point. So you're at court the day of court yeah what advice do you
0: have so when the day that they need to be there come on up to the courtroom at the time that they're told to be there and just wait outside the courtroom oftentimes there's a rule of excluding witnesses that is usually invoked in every single case and the idea is say lee and dr. patrick y'all are both witnesses to something we don't want the jury hearing we want the jury hearing from you individually we don't want the idea that maybe you've gotten your story together or if Lee's in there testifying, and you're in there watching, and you haven't testified yet, and you're like, you know what, I don't remember it the way Lee just testified to, but I guess he's right, so you change your account. So because of that, that rule, and having the jury hear from everyone individually, witnesses, other than you know, some limited circumstances, have to wait outside. So come up to the courtroom, wait outside, and you should have either gotten a, t- a phone number, a cell phone number for the prosecutor, or an investigator. Send them a text, let them know they're, you're there. They'll come out there and get you as soon as they can. Kind of give you an update about where things are. Bring something, bring a copy of your report to review again. Um, you know, bring something to read in case you're sitting there for a couple hours or make sure your phone's charged or what have <laughs> you. Um, just because, you know, court can be a lot of hurry up and wait type stuff, so.
2: I know for me personally, you know, some rules I always have on my personal level. Um, don't chew gum. Yep. Um, Make sure your hair is neat and combed. Mm -hmm. Make sure you um, are presentable and uh, pay attention.
0: Yeah, and, and paying attention is really important, especially once you get on the witness stand. That's one of the, you know, that's probably rule number two behind number one of just always be honest and tell the truth.
2: Well, and then in today's day and age of with cell phones and technology, be careful who you talk to. Outside the courtroom or people who overhear your conversations. And
0: Lee, that's, that's a great point, too, because during a break, jurors could be walking around. And, you know, we don't want a mistrial potentially happening right. because you're talking about the case with somebody else and, and they overhear things. Additionally, you could be waiting outside with a police officer or other witnesses and everyone's under the rule. So you're, not supposed, you're allowed to talk to each other, but not about the case, not about what you're going to testify to. So worst case scenario is someone could really be held in contempt of court for violating the rule. That's the worst case scenario. That's when someone's, you know, intentionally doing it kind of thing. But, you know, you could also not be allowed to testify, which could really, you know, potentially throw a wrench in, in, in a situation and make, you know, make our job of, of trying to hold someone accountable for a crime they committed even more difficult.
2: Any other advice you can give to our staff?
0: so not well not regarding for when they come to court but when they when they actually are on the witness stand i've yeah i've got some advice for that for for testifying so kind of the main rule is to always 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 just tell the truth tell the truth no matter what if you don't know the answer the correct answer is i don't know there's nothing wrong with that there's nothing wrong with saying you don't know if you don't remember that's okay too you can say you don't remember. You can use your report to refresh your memory like we mentioned earlier oftentimes their reports are going to be admitted in evidence in the case so they can read it see if it refreshes their memory but if you're asked a question and reading your report doesn't refresh your memory to remember the answer to the question then you don't know and that's okay um you know saying that you don't understand the question or saying that you can't answer a question given the way that it's asked that's okay to do as well too you know oftentimes on cross-examination they're going to ask questions that you know may assume things you as a witness shouldn't really assume anything on the stand you want to listen to the question make sure you understand the question make sure you know like okay do i know the answer to this question can i answer this question and if you can then answer it and if you can't you need to say that you can't and potentially explain why um kind of one one common question on cross-examination is kind of asking hypotheticals and asking isn't something possible well every you know so many various things are possible out there but at the end of the day you really don't know whether it is or it isn't um you know we as prosecutors we don't like to object to questions the defense that we really only object when we have to um you know we don't want the jury thinking we're hiding something and so you know They'll, they love to ask questions. Let's let's just take like the the impaired driving context. Well, isn't it possible that, you know, you said that my client had red glassy eyes, but isn't that possible? You know, he could have had those if he was crying or was in a smoky area or something like that. That's always an alternate explanation for whatever's bad for the defendant or for whatever, to, you know, the side that is questioning you doesn't want. They throw out those alternate explanations and if it's possible, then then yes, it's possible. Sure, if you know from your possible. training experience, it's possible. Um, but if you don't know, if you aren't sure, then you know the right answer is like, I don't know. Are you? I mean, do you want me to speculate? I, you know, I don't really know. And maybe at that point, if if they've asked you, then we'll object because questions that call for you to speculate about something are not proper questions. They're objectionable. So I'm asking you a bunch of things like that. Isn't something possible? Isn't something possible? I'm asking you to speculate on something. Those are objectionable questions. So we can object to those um you know another thing that they may ask you is like you know something to your knowledge and that's a way that lawyers like to ask questions like well to your knowledge you know they didn't blah 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 to your knowledge right well you're like no not to my knowledge which kind of implies that something happened you just don't know about it whereas really the the most honest answer is something like that is like i i don't know because there's so much information out there that we don't know like if you're if you know if if both y'all were witnesses and i'm saying you you know it's possible trying to basically make the point that Dr. Patrick did something. And you're like, well, t- to my knowledge, he may have done that or may not have, kind of thing. You know, just answering as a, with an I don't know is tends I have to be no better. idea. Yeah. And there's, and there's nothing wrong with that. So the, the main thing, and this kind of goes back to also, we talked about kind of playing your position, staying in your lane, is your job there is to give the facts. And sometimes you may be asked for an opinion based on your training and experience as a paramedic. Um, as a nurse, as as a doctor, depending on on, on the person, uh, hopefully those things have been, you know, covered ahead of time with with the person, um, so that there may be times that we're asking for an opinion on something, especially if it's like, well, hey, this person was showing all of these signs of impairment, and you checked them out, and you didn't see anything medically wrong. You know, have you seen intoxicated people before? Apparently, y'all see them a lot. From what I'm told, we do. Uh, Two
1: or three? Well, and two or three. There's that word intoxication,
2: and I kind of want to take a segue off that real quick. You know, I've been told as long as I've been in this profession, 30 years or more, that we should never use that term intoxication. We should never use that term drunk in Mm. in our reports. We should never use that term alcohol in our reports because, one, we're not chemical scientists. We Mm. don't know if it was alcohol or not. Two, We can't determine if that patient's intoxicated or not because that's a legal term. Mm -hmm. And then three, we're only documenting the facts of how that patient presented to us. So they appeared intoxicated because they were slurring their speech. Mm -hmm. Their eyes were red. They had a staggered gait. They weren't able to maintain their balance. So for us to document those facts, Mm -hmm. not to say that term intoxication, would you say that's probably something that we should do on a regular basis?
0: You know, it's that's uh, kind of a tough one. I, I would personally like that if they think that the person's mm-hmm. intoxicated, but it gets you into a situation to where maybe you're going outside your lane, potentially. So if, you know, police officers, when they write their reports, especially if they have the opinion the person was intoxicated, they note that. And, you know, there's there is a legal definition for intoxicated in Texas law. And the one that's, you know, that, that it's de- it's defined in, in chapter 49 in the penal code where we're talking about the impaired driving offenses as not having the normal use of your mental faculties because of the ingestion of drugs, alcohol, controlled substances, really anything under the law. Or not having the normal use of your mental faculty, am sorry, or your physical faculties. Or having an al- alcohol concentration of 0.08 or more. So, you know, um, officers, they write that they believe the person was intoxicated because they're also making a legal determination to arrest somebody, um, you know. If the person is of that opinion that the person's intoxic if, if the paramedics of that opinion i personally don't have a problem with them writing down i think it would be a good thing but that you know i, I think is probably some better to whatever the policies for the hospital district are to you know whether they y'all really want them going that far with it if they smell what they know from their training experience to be alcohol or something that smells like the odor of alcohol beverage there's nothing wrong with putting that down either and that's really how officers often write it down and said like i smelled you know, what I know from my training experience to be the odor of an alcoholic beverage coming from the person's breath as I spoke to them or on the person's clothes and there were spilled things, that kind of stuff.
2: I see.
1: Good spot to wrap us up, Lee.
0: I think
2: that is. Yeah, uh, we... I think we've talked about testimony on both sides, correct? Is there anything that you want to add on that?
0: One one last thing that is just kind of a little pet peeve of mine when it comes to testimony, and I see police officers do this too much, it's going back to that kind of a, the alternate explanations. If, you know, say someone has... um third speech like you mentioned a minute ago there may be other explanations for that one thing i want people to just understand and remember is that just because there's an alternate explanation for something doesn't mean that the explanation you believe it to be isn't correct just because there can be more than one explanation for something doesn't mean that therefore the reason you thought it was isn't correct and i say that because oftentimes i'll see defense attorneys asking what you know police officers and others well you said that he has third speech because you know That was a sign of intoxication well couldn't his speech couldn't it be an accent or going back to the red glassy eyes couldn't they have glassy eyes because of smoke or crying or whatever well yeah that's possible and then they kind of go one step further and say well then you can't say that was from this well if that's your opinion based on your training experience and everything that you saw today then yes you can say that just because this thing is possible if it doesn't change your mind then yeah you can still you can still say that So, so it
2: would be appropriate for the witness to say Based upon my training experience, yeah. my opinion is yeah. XYZ.
0: I believe this was caused because of this. That's perfectly fine for them to say to you. Just because there's an alternate explanation doesn't negate that explanation, if that makes sense.
1: And and again, just to, I think to make the medical analogy, if you've got a patient that presents with chest mm-hmm. pain and you get an EKG and your 12 lead shows an ST elevation MI, I get the chest pain could be from a pulmonary embolus, but... It's probably not based on all of the other evidence that you have. So, again, if you fall back on your medical expertise Mm -hmm. and what you know from your training, uh, what you know from your objective evidence, and that's what you document. In the end, it all goes back to, you know, staying in your lane, knowing Mm -hmm. what you know, being confident in that, and then documenting that appropriately. Be honest, right? And And that's being honest in... Uh, you know, throughout this conversation, I think that's the key in relying on what we know and, and yeah. trying not to exceed the bounds of that. And I think that holds true to, to any situation, really. I think so too. Yeah. yeah.
2: You know, and the last question, then we'll wrap it up. I know individuals always have other plans outside of work, you know, whether or not the agency pays for the employee mm-hmm. to attend uh, the trial or be a witness, that's up to the individual agency. And I don't want to speak specifically to MCHD because there are other medics and uh, that yeah. listen to this podcast, uh, but the big question always comes up: What if I have plans for that day? What if we've had a trip scheduled, and it took us? We booked it a year ago, and now I have this trial. So how does that work? What happens with that?
0: Great question, Lee, and I'm glad we we didn't forget to cover this. So that's why calling the contact person on the subpoena as soon as you get it is extremely important. Because say say hey, you're an, you're a material witness that I need, and you're going to be you've got to trip planned that you've already paid for, as much as it may frustrate me, I can ask the judge to try to to continue that case. Um if we can't continue it, maybe I may need to have to have you testify via Skype from wherever you are. Uh, We've done that at times before too. But given the the um or additionally like hey maybe I realize I can get by because both say you and Dr. Patrick were were on the ambulance together, did a lot of stuff together. He's gonna be here you're going, you know, on a week-long vacation out of the country, then you know what? All right, you're going to have to testify instead, Dr. Patrick. And, you know, that's that's one way we can get around that.
2: I know sometimes we see on TV people doing pre-recorded testimony as well. Yeah. Is that a possibility or does that really not occur?
0: It's extremely rare in Texas criminal cases and in most criminal cases because the defendant has a Sixth Amendment right to confront the witnesses against them. And that means really, you know, if anyone is going to be testifying in any way shape or form that's not helpful to them they have a right to -to face-to-face confrontation we really can only Skype someone in or have them testify remotely by agreement if the defense is willing to agree to that Um, you know we've we've years ago had a an officer who was in the army was in the reserves and he was overseas at the time he testified via Skype from I think Afghanistan Um, we've had some folks testify remotely before but normally the person needs to be there in live live testimony in the courtroom uh, depositions are extremely rare in criminal cases. There's actually only a small little, uh, subsection that really certain circumstances that provide for it. So knowing that someone's got some sort of conflict ahead of time, and if we can get a case moved, we're going to try to do that or potentially like, Hey, you're not available this day. Hey, we're still going to be in trial this day. Well, all right, I'll, I'll move who my plan of witnesses around. And if you can't be there Monday afternoon, then we'll put you on Tuesday or Wednesday, depending on how long the trial is going to go. You know, but knowing that information as far up ahead of time as we can, we can do as much as possible to, to not make someone have to reschedule plans. Excellent. Now, if it's just your day off and you're hanging out at home and I've got, you know, and, and it's a murder case or something, then you, we're going to need you to come in and come right, testify. Right.
1: Excellent. I mean, going back to the beginning, getting in contact mm-hmm. with the uh, contact number on the subpoena as soon as possible, being thorough yep. as you always should be within the bounds of your training. You know, being honest, sticking to your guns, uh, sticking to your training, yeah.
2: documenting the facts.
1: Documenting yeah. the facts. I think a lot of these things. When you take the nervousness and the sort of the trepidation out, it's just mm-hmm. kind of fall back on what you know and fall back on your training and being yeah. honest and straightforward. So, thanks, thanks for joining us, Andrew. Thanks for having Lee, me, Lee. Thanks for putting this together. Oh, I think it's some great information for our for our medics and our listeners out there. As always, if you have questions or concerns, uh, ideas for new episodes, send us an email at the podcast email. Uh, podcast at mchd-tx.org. Leave us a review where you listen to your podcast and we will talk to everyone again soon. Thanks.
0: This podcast
1: was brought to you by the Montgomery County Hospital District, Texas. Production and editing by Andrew Adams. Questions or comments which are always welcome can be sent to podcast at mchd-tx.org. Make sure to subscribe above to keep updated to all our future casts. Music, copyright, Kevin McLeod and Competech.com licensed under Creative Commons by Attribution 3.0.